Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Ray Dirksen, the lead pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. We're going to be speaking uh, on marriage and sexuality. Uh, I think a very pertinent uh, topic in these days. And we're not just going to talk about it this week. We're going to talk about it at least next week. And you never know how long. If I follow my son's example, (laughs) it'll be right till next year the same time. Summer in marriage. Or summer in sexuality. Like the S's. Oh, the young people. (laughs) That excited them. (laughs) Love you guys. (laughs) It should. This is, like I said, if I fall off the horse, (laughs) just bear with me, I'll get back on again. (laughs) All right, I think after all this, we need to pray. (laughs) Beginning with repentance. Father, thank you for um, the worship time and uh, which which we were singing. Soon and very soon. Wow, that was so moving. Uh, because you are causing our, our desires to be fixed on you. And I think many of us really were, as we were singing that, we were not singing a song, we were singing a prayer. We were singing, come soon, Lord Jesus. That's what we were singing. Not because we're depressed, but as we've learned to walk with you, we've found there's no joy like being with you. And so, Lord, uh, we thank you that you're real. You're not a theory. You're not some philosophical thought to be debated. You're somebody we can walk with in the garden alone, in the morning, in the evening. And we thank you for that. Now, Lord, as we look at your plan for society, for the family, for marriage, for the home, we just ask that your Holy Spirit would move and help us to catch the vision of what you say in your word about marriage, and sexuality. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the past 45, 50 years, marriage in the West has been in steady decline. Belief in the desirability and goodness of marriage was once universal, but not anymore. In a survey in Virginia, only one-third of high school girls and boys believe that marriage is more beneficial than the alternative. So what happened? Well, first there was this shift from self-denial to self-fulfillment. That was the first thing. Previous cultures taught their members to find meaning in, in duty, but embracing their assigned social roles and carrying them out faithfully. Society had a vested interest because, because lifelong marriage was seen as the only kind of social environment in which children could grow and thrive. That's the way it used to be. 
But then came the Age of Enlightenment in the 18th and 19th century, for, for centuries, for millennia. That's how marriage has been viewed until the Enlightenment came, the Age of the Enlightenment in the 18th and 19th centuries. And that changed all of that. Instead of people finding meaning through self-denial, through giving up one's freedoms for the duties of marriage and family, marriage was re redefined as finding emotional and sexual fulfillment. Uh, the same thing with work. My, my wife and I have noted this many times over the years. People used to talk, uh, you know, they, they, just, they, they just went to a job. They didn't care what kind of a job it was. The job was there to supply for their needs and for the family. It was self-denial. It didn't matter what the job was. But in today's day and age, it's all about self-fulfillment. By the way, self-fulfillment is not a biblical concept. And whenever you talk about it uh, as, like that, you're really talking about a world value, not about a biblical value. Biblical value is not about self-fulfillment. It's about self-denial. Our fulfillment comes as, uh, as a, a side benefit. It is not the goal in and of itself. We exist for God. I'll say more about that later. And for his glory, not for our fulfillment. But that all changed. Marriage no longer had any broader good, such as reflecting God, as in the Trinitarian mo model, producing character, because it was seen, marriage was seen as civilizing men and raising children. Marriage was now divorced from God and society and was reduced to a simple contract between two individuals for self-gratification. This shift greatly began to undermine marriage. Then came the second thing, no-fault divorce. 1966, no-fault uh, no divorce was introduced in California and, and then in New York, supported by the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, the leader of the world's Anglican Church. And uh, pre previous uh, to that, only the betrayed spouse in a broken marriage due to adultery could initiate a divorce. That's how it was in 1966. That's not, that's not that long ago. And the offending spouse usually suffered severe financial and custodial penalties for being the cause of the divorce. Does that sound like ancient history? That was just prior to 1966. Such laws not only made a clear public statement that infidelity was wrong, but those laws also helped compensate the betrayed spouses and children who were damaged by such behavior. Such laws undergirded the institution of marriage, giving the necessary stability for the training of generations of children before that. Little wonder we got so many problems with children. They got all kinds of anxiety and emotional problems, etc., etc. We'll get to that. The new laws meant that couples could divorce for just about any reason. Today, the spouse having the affair can be the one to file for divorce, and he or she may suffer absolutely no penalty. Betrayed spouses, on the other hand, who have done nothing to violate their marital agreement or vow, can now find themselves divorced, stripped of half of their assets, having lost 
custody of their children, and in some cases, financial responsibility for their unfaithful ex-spouse. Today, approximately 45% of all marriages uh, end in separation or divorce. The Institute of American uh, Values uh, sponsored a project called the National Par uh, Marriage Project, continues on, and by the way, you can look it up on the internet and read their reports. They've got old reports, first, second, and third editions. The, the last one is uh, 48 pages long. And I could, I mean, you, you want to see the results and effects of the undermining of marriage? Read that. I had to take every, just about everything that I had for this message out so I could actually get to some other things. But this institute brings together approximately 100 leading scholars from across the human sciences for collaborative research on marriage. Many, many of these have PhDs and that sort of thing. In 2002, they released their first set of findings in the first edition report. Now, I, I can't remember what the last one was. I think it was 2012. And, uh, and, and it was called Why Marriage Matters, and they began with 21 reasons. In the subsequent report, it went to 26 reasons, and then finally 30 reasons. And uh, four, or 30 effects, I should say, would, would even be um, uh, what came out in the research. And the research revealed that skyrocketing divorce rates, based on what had happened in, 19, in the mid-60s and how that spread, the research revealed that skyrocketing divorce rates were undermining marriage, resulting in, in 30 key detrimental effects upon the adults, children, and society. And uh, here's just a couple of examples. I, I, we don't have time to go into a lot. But for example, marriage greatly increases the likelihood that fathers and mothers have good relationships with their children. Intact marriages greatly increases that. Nothing is foolproof, because even marriages are broken by sin. But it's way better than non-intact families. 65% of young adults from divorced families had poor relationships with their dads, compared to only 29% from non-divorced families. Huge difference. New research indicates that the effects of divorce, and this one will really interest you or surprise you probably, it indicates that the effects of divorce across three, that there is effects across three generations. Sounds like the Bible almost, doesn't it? Grandchildren of couples who divorced are significantly more likely to experience marital discord, negative relationships with parents, low levels of educational attainment compared to grandchildren whose grandparents did not divorce. Can you believe that? It affects them down to the third generation. And this was in the studies in the social sciences. Uh, studies that control for other factors, including poverty, show that children reared in intact homes do better in literacy, graduation rates, rates of anxiety, depression, substance abuse, attention deficit disorder, delinquency, and incarceration. Now, time out here for, for a second. I am in no way being critical of or hateful towards people who have experienced difficult marriages, and the marriages have fallen apart. 
there, are, there is such a thing as guilty spouses and offending spouses and betrayed spouses. Isn't that true? Absolutely, I've seen it. I'm 62 now. I've been in ministry nearly 30 years. I've seen it over and over and over again. All of us are sinners, and there's no question. But when it comes to the breakdown in marriage, I've often seen that it's one that, we're, that is causing the problem. And this is also not denigrating those who are offspring from those kinds of non-intact marriages. They don't all turn out bad. Thank God. Amen? Amen? It could be much, much worse. However, what I'm saying is, for millennia, in fact, social studies indicate that as far back as recorded history goes, all societies, all civilizations, all agreed in, in this one thing about marriage. Marriage was important. They didn't all look exactly the same. You might have a pocket here or there that didn't believe in it, and you know, uh, so, uh, you know, some anthropologists and sociologists sometimes are trying to look for, for a group here or there, and sometimes you find a little group here or there. But for the most part, all civilization, going back as far as recorded history will take you, all believed in the institution of marriage. We'll get to that. So one recent study of the entire Swedish population of children found that boys reared in single-parent homes were more than 50% more likely to die from a range of causes such as suicide, accidents, or addiction. That's significant. We should care about that. If we care about smoking and tobacco, we should care about marriage. Sociologist Paul Amato estimated the likely effects of returning marriage rates for households with children to the level of 1980. Never mind, the, you know, if, if you'd gone back to 1960, it would have been even more incredible. And if this was not 2008, but eight years later, like it is today, you'd see the numbers even different. 500,000, you know, half a million fewer children suspended from school, 200,000 fewer children engaging in delinquency or violence, quarter of a million fewer children receiving therapy, quarter of a million fewer smokers, 80,000 fewer uh, ch uh, children thinking about suicide, 28,000 fewer children attempting suicide. And all of this affects society as a whole. You know, this idea about uh, this is just between two consenting adults, that's such nonsense and rubbish. It's a complete lie. It affects everybody. It affects society, where marriages never form or easily break down. The state, or government, the, uh, expands to fill the vacuum with legal battles to determine paternity, who's, you know, who's the father, who's the mother, visiting rights, child support. There's increased policing and social services. The costs are skyrocketing. Sociologists David uh, Popeno and Alan Wolf's research on Scandinavian countries shows that as marriage culture declines, the size and scope of state power and spending grows correspondingly. A 2008 U.S. study found that divorce and unwed childbearing cost taxpayers at least $112 billion each year. And it's escalating. Marriage is more than a private emotional relationship. 
that's not what marriage is about. And I, young people, when you're getting married, I suggest you go back to the old-fashioned traditional vows. This, uh, this mamby-pamby stuff of, you know, I'm, I love you and so let's get married, that emotional stuff, that's not enough to make it in your marriage. We're going to get to that. <laughs> like everything else. <laughs> it is also a social good. Not every person and, and, and uh, not every person can or should marry. That's not at all what I'm saying here. And not every child raised outside of marriage, as I said before, is damaged as a result. Marriage is not a cure-all that will solve all of our social ills, but marriage matters. Third, cohabitation. That was the next step. It's a, de it's a, it's a descending uh, order of five. More than half of all people lived together before marrying, while in 1960, virtually no one did. Can you imagine that? In 2011, the National Marriage Project reported that the rise of cohabiting households with children is the largest unrecognized threat to the quality and stability of children's family lives. They discovered <clears throat> that adults who, who live together are more similar to singles than to married couples in terms of physical and mental health as well as in assets and earnings. And children with cohabiting parents have outcomes more similar to children living with single or remarried parents than children from, inta from intact marriages. The reason is that cohabiting units, unions are much less stable than married unions. 50%, for example, of children born to cohabiting couples see their parents' unions end by age five, 50%, compared to only 15% of children born to a married couple. Marriage matters. Marriage has always mattered to societies and civilizations through the millennia, and the scriptures tell us the same. Fourth, same-sex marriage. We already know the escalating effects, negative effects, of, the so of socially experimenting and re-engineering and undermining of marriage uh, through no-fault divorce and cohabitation. And now we have begun to experiment with same-sex marriage. And we haven't seen the effects that will show up in studies 20 and 30 years from now. July 20th, 2005, Canada became the fourth country in the world to recognize same-sex marriage with the enactment of the Civil Marriage Act. And then a Supreme Court ruling on June 26, 2015 did the same in the U.S. Redefining marriage will further undermine marriage. Don't ever kid yourself. This isn't just adding to the options. It's not. Listen to the words of Joseph Ratz, an Oxford philosopher who does not share the traditional marriage view at all. He doesn't share our view. 
But listen to what he says. He explains that the inevitable and sweeping consequences of changing marriage laws will not just add new options to the heterosexual family, that is male and female, they will change the character of the family. For example, if you reduce the idea of marriage to an emotional union, as most of our culture now has done, it's not about raising children, it's not about self-denial, it's not about duty, it's not about, it, it, that's not where you get your fulfillment out of, you get it out of self-gratification, then there is no reason that these unions should be permanent or limited to two. If it's just about emotional union, you know, because I, I feel romantically in love with you, then why have two? Why not have three or four or five? And why not have larger uh, marital, ensemble, uh, mar marital ensembles, I just mentioned, but why, why be ex sexually exclusive rather than open? Have an open sexual arrangement. And uh, ev even though uh, heterosexual marriages will be affected, and they will be, it's, it's not that, okay, they will just do their thing, and let them do their thing, they will affect heterosexual marriages. That's what same-sex marriage is going to do. Social pressure and incentives for husbands to remain with their wives and biological children will be diminished as their emotions wax and wane because now it's just about emotions. I mean, if it's just about an emotional union, then, then the number of people or who it is and the permanence or lack of it and all of those, exclusivity, and all those things go out the window. And once that, is, once that happens, already we're seeing the pressure it's putting even on Christian heterosexual couples, young couples, as they feel what the cultural believes, and there's less incentive and support from the culture to keep a marriage together. So it's going to undermine it. With that will come even greater cost to children and society than we're reaping right now. Yet, marriage revisionists actually embrace the goal of weakening the institution of marriage. I had to choose which quotes I'd, I'd put here. I had to do it with everything, which I would keep out. So listen to this one. And this is from Michelangelo Signorelli prominent advocate of redefining marriage, and he urges people in same-sex relationships to demand the right to marry, not as a way of adhering to society's moral codes, but rather to debunk a myth and radically alter an archaic institution. He says they should fight for same-sex marriage and its benefits, and then, once granted, redefine the institu institution of marriage completely because the most subversive action lesbians and gay men can undertake is to transform the notion of family entirely. End of quote. That's the goal. That's the stated goal. And that will further undermine the heterosexual um, marriage and family and make it worse on children and thus on society. Fifth is re-education. The Toronto District's school board, for example, has taken to promoting uh, polyamorous relationships among its students. 
Uh, so you can have many <laughs> that you love in your triangle or, or quadrant or whatever you want to call it. Since 2011, some Swedish kindergartens are now using gender-neutral pronouns. Instead of using the pronouns him and her, when talking to the children, they use a genderless pronoun, hen. In 2007, California then-Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger signed a bill that banned the use of mom and dad, as well as husband and wife. This is coming to the West. This, this is in the West. This is going to be everywhere. Schools will be training, or indoctrinating would be a better word, children in the new inventions of marriage and family that society is creating. Now, here's the question. Is it true that marriage is a human social invention, or did God invent it? What was it for? What did it look like? And we're not going to be able to talk about all of that today, but we'll talk about some of it today, as much as we can get through the first thing we notice is that God made someone fit for man, woman, woman. We'll see that God instituted marriage and as such regulates it. The panoramic view of Genesis 1 in creation now uh, uh, was followed in Genesis 2 where he, he, where he zoomed in and looked at the account of the sixth day that uh, was the creation of the human couple, Adam and Eve. After creating Adam, God placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it. And right at this point, God made a jarring assessment. He said, it is not good that the man should be what? Alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. So his assessment was, after, uh, was, this is not good. Man is alone. God's assessment, uh, but, and apparently a man's aloneness was an impediment to his complete fulfillment. God had a solution, however. He said, I'll make a helper fit for him. But wait, the storyline then suddenly shifts with God bringing all created creatures to Adam for him to name. It's interesting. I mean, no, no sooner has he said, this is not good, this aloneness of man. Instead of solving the problem there, or at least that's how it seems, he goes on to bring in the animals for Adam to name. But guess what? It's related. Something really fascinating happens. Having just named the animals and the birds, it is, it is followed by a restatement of what was said two verses earlier. Take a look at verse 20 now. So verse 18 is still up there. But for Adam, there was not found, uh, what does it say? Helper fit for him. God had just said in verse 18, I'll make a helper fit for him. Then he brings him the animals. And then he says, but for Adam, after naming the animals, there was not found a helper fit for him. What's the point? The point that the writer is getting, uh, trying to get across to us is that the aloneness would not be completed by some animal. Is that true? That's exactly what it's saying. But there's something else intriguing about all this. In a very real sense, Adam was not alone. After all, God was with him, and this is before the fall. And Adam had tremendous communion and fellowship with God, walking and talking in the garden in the morning. And many of you experience that 
on a daily or regular basis. Adam experienced companionship in this relationship with God, and yet God said that Adam was alone. Isn't that fascinating? All of this before the fall, before sin entered the world and wrecked relationships between man and God and man and man. What that means then is that God intentionally designed each of us with certain needs that are an intrinsic part of being human. Needs that only a fellow human being can meet. God made it and designed you and I like that. As much as you need God, God also designed that somehow a piece of your completeness would be found in marriage with another human being. Think of it. God designed it like that. So far we see that neither animals nor God himself were fit to complete or fulfill what was missing in Adam's life of aloneness. So what was God's solution that would be fit for Adam? A woman. God didn't make the man and woman identical. If God had merely wanted companionship for Adam, God himself could have provided that. If God had wanted fraternity and friendship, he could have made another man. Instead, he fashioned someone splendidly distinct from the man, both psychologically and biologically, and I had to keep a whole bunch of illustrations out of here. Yet similar, he created woman. Fascinating. Neither animal nor God nor another man was fit to perfect or complete what was evidently missing in Adam. Only woman could do that. You know the word helper here, a helper fit for him. Let's talk about that a moment. It's a bit of an unfortunate translation, not because the translators were bad, but just because of the baggage it carries in our English context today. Uh, not, which was not intended by the original writer, by the way. It implies that the woman was made to be Adam's assistant, so to speak, someone who would fetch for him. That really misses the richness of what God intended and what the Hebrew listeners understood. The Hebrew word uh, from which helpers translated is heser, which is a combination of two ro uh, root words, and there you have them on the screen, Hetzer, uh, meaning to rescue or to save, and Getzer, meaning to be strong. And I'm sure I completely mutilated the um, pronunciation, but that doesn't matter. I'm not a Hebrew. Um, I'm not a circumcised Hebrew. Anyway, the, town, the noun <laughs> Hetzer is used 21 times in the Old Testament and clearly denotes strength. Deuteronomy says... Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your, what's the word? Help. And the sword of your triumph, your enemies shall come fawning uh, to you, and you shall tread upon their backs. Why? Because God was their, what? Help or strength. He was their help or strength to save. The context makes clear that this word sp uh, speaks of God being Israel's strength and to help, uh, or to help and save them in battle. They couldn't do it without him. Surely, God is not our weaker assistant. Would you agree? 
He is also not someone we use to fetch for everything we want. A lot of Christians would do well to listen carefully to what I just said there. He's not, in low German, our Schachbengel. And if you don't know what that means, there's no way to translate that. That's a heavenly language. Yeah. It's one of the tongues that Paul was speaking about. <laughs> so then helper, uh, the Hebrew hetzer, means one who supplies strength in the area that is lacking in the one being helped. This didn't uh, imply weakness or inferiority. What God intended then was to make a strength for the man who would in every way correspond to and complement his weaknesses. For what God wanted them to do, particularly in the raising of a family. Um, men have certain strengths and women have certain strengths and they're not the same. And that doesn't mean if you're single that you are now walking around like a half person. Paul wasn't married. Jesus wasn't married. And for if God wants you and calls you to be single, then you can reflect God and you can carry out his will and he's got a plan for you just like he does for married people. But there are certain functions that married people have to have and it takes both of them to pull it off. So don't walk out of here feeling like you don't belong. You do belong. And of course, by extension, the reverse is also true. God made the differences, and those differences are purposeful. There is also a difference in the Trinity without inferiority. And it was the Trinitarian God who created mankind in his Trinitarian image. Man and woman complete each other in such a complementary way that man with man and woman with man cannot fully do. And in this, they reflect the Trinitarian God, the man and the woman. There's one more thing that highlights the woman companion God intentionally designed for man, and that is how she was made. In order to teach the close connection that a woman has with man, notice God did not speak her into existence like much of creation. He did not create her from the ground like the animals, and he did not form her from the dust like Adam. Instead, God fashioned her from one of Adam's ribs. That's fascinating. He fashioned her from a rib. And there's reason for that. So, you know, some people, maybe you're here today and you say, oh, this is so myth-like. Wait a minute. God wanted to, uh, let's just stop for, for one second. If you posit God then anything that comes after that is plausible, isn't it? If you posit that there is a God, then anything he decides to do after that is possible, yes or no? Yeah. You know, a few months ago, Chris was talking about the Big Bang. And there's, there's four, uh, four or five key different kinds of arguments we can use to demonstrate evidence for God. Not proof for God, but evidence for God. And the reason that God doesn't prove himself and just show up and just, you know, just kind of stand here, which he will one day. Now, I don't mean in our auditorium, but on earth. 
in the person of Jesus Christ is because he's leaving breadcrumbs because he will not coerce you into believing in him. Because if he coerces you into believing in him, then you go to heaven grumpy. It's the lesser of two evils, heaven or hell. Well, they're both not great, but I guess I'll go with heaven. I really don't want to be there because I don't want to submit to God. I don't want to live my life for Jesus. I don't actually love him. I, I don't want, I hate it that he tells me what to do and he's got a plan for my life. I want nothing to do with him, but if I have to, if he's there. So what God does is hides himself just enough so that those who want him, who see the evidence and say, I want to respond to that God, they will. They'll find him. You will seek me and you will find me when you, what? Seek me with all your heart. No problem. Nobody who wants God will miss God. But the, God, the ones who don't want God, they also will miss God. So God sets it up like that. So there's evidences for God's existence, many but not proofs. So as Chris talked about the Big Bang Theory, uh, which Einstein followed up by Hubble, they discovered this law that the universe is expanding, so, and it never stops expanding, so if it's expanding, then if you, if you go back in time, then there must have been a place where it began, which is a real problem for atheists, because they don't want a began. That means there is a beganer behind the began. <laughs> and it's precisely that which they don't want. And it messes with them. Then matter, which they always say is eternal, isn't true. And if matter isn't eternal, then there must be a cause that's eternal, and we say it's God that's eternal. There's evidence. There's a lot of evidence. We could go through other ones. And the only reason I'm saying that, I'm just stopping for a moment. Don't get tripped up on, on, on a rib. That doesn't bother me one little bit. Somebody once said, I'm not, it doesn't bother me that a whale swallowed Jonah. In fact, I'd have no problem believing that Jonah swallowed the whale, if that's what God said. Because once you posit God, anything is possible. Does it make sense? So don't get hung up on a rib. There's a reason why he chose a rib. He wanted it to be perfectly plain and clear <laughs> to people. For, forever. That this wasn't just another creature. It wasn't just an animal. It wasn't another part of creation. It wasn't just another man. It was a woman. And he created her out of the side so that, there, that we would understand the close nature of those two as opposed to any other. Does that make sense? That's why he did it. I just love it when you say yes. It means I'm saying it all right. <laughs> and then Moses exclaimed, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. To emphasize this closeness, he did that. One more thing uh, before we move on. There was only one woman. That's not incidental. He could have created two or three. 
He didn't. And he did it intentionally. Mankind chose to rebel against God in many ways, one of them being in marriage and sexuality, so God warned them. Leviticus 18, you shall not marry a woman in addition to her sister. Literally, it, 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 the word is another. As a rival while she is alive to uncover her nakedness. It doesn't actually say sister in Hebrew. It says another, though it, it, it can be sister, but I think it's much more than that because it, it doesn't say sister. Scripture uncovers the grief in marriage is made up of multiple wives. There was competition. There was posturing and fighting between spouses, bargaining for what should have, uh, 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 for, for their sexual rights, separation and paternal neglect of children, and much, much more. Polygamy was awful. Can you say awful? We see the same thing in Paul's writings, but since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Clearly, a shared husband wouldn't be the woman's own husband. That's why, under the qualifications for church leadership, Paul includes monogamy, one woman, one man, in his qualifications. He says, now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but, of what? One wife. Marriage is the union of only one man and one woman. Now, we better move on or you're going to be here this afternoon. God joined the man and the woman in a thing called marriage. That day, God did more than just create a woman. He created marriage. Look at the evidence. God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man. He slept, took one of the ribs, closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. We already saw God didn't create woman like any other creation. This would be special and memorable. Adam was put to sleep. Then God removed flesh and bone from Adam's side and created Eve out of it. Why all the fuss? Why not just make her? Again, he's trying to get our attention. Because God was marking the inauguration of something so special and so foundational, he wanted everyone for all history to get it and never forget it. God often marked uh, important matters with memorable events. In Genesis 15, he did, that with, uh, he did it with Abraham. He put him to sleep in the covenant he made with Abraham about 400 years. Your people will be in slavery, and then they're going to come out with great possessions, and, I'm gonna, and, and, and they're going to inherit the land of Canaan. And he, he made it so memorable, he put Abraham asleep and then uh, made the covenant, you know, with the burning, uh, the burning pot between the carcass of the animals. He could have simply told Abraham that, but he didn't. He didn't want Abraham and his offspring ever to forget, and they didn't. The covenant with Abraham was that special. Similarly, God was establishing something so foundational and special that he marked it with a standout event so mankind would never misunderstand or forget what he had done. Remarkably, when sociologists have studied, as I mentioned, referred to before, they've discovered that this has been a, a unanimous concept throughout the recorded history of civilization. And you can't say that, by the way, about religion or, for, or other forms of government, can you? But you can't say it about that. And then Abraham broke into ecstatic and poetic song when he saw her. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my, uh, 
flesh. She'll be called woman, Ishash, Isha, because she was taken out of man, Ish. It's a play on words, poetry. He was, he was singing poetry. He probably sang at the wedding, <laughs> like Zach Pearson did. Oh, it makes you cry. Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. We're going to talk more about that next week. After God created her, he, he brought and presented her to Adam, and suddenly she's known as his woman. It says wife. That's because we've got a word for it now, but it literally says his woman. It becomes possessive. Later we read about Noah and his son's wives, literally his, Noah and his son's women. Possess in the possessive. But of animals, God says, take two of each, one male, one female, because in marriage there's a possessive element to it. In Scripture, all women do not belong to every man and all men do not belong to every woman. There's clearly something unique in the relationship of this pairing that is dissimilar to the pairing of animals. And so in creating Eve, God didn't simply make a woman. He made a bride and brought her to the man. Is that special? Amen. <laughs> it is so special. 43 years for me. And then God protected the marriage with a covenant. This you don't want to go to sleep for. Some mistakenly believe that marriage is entered by means of sex. Not true. This is evident in the conversation between Jesus and the woman at the well in Samaria where Jesus asked her to get her husband. The woman answered, I don't have a husband, to which Jesus said, you're right. You're right in saying that, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. Marriage is not simply the act of sex, and that's why there is such a thing as premarital sex. We'll say more about that another time if God grants me more days. Marriage is entered upon through means of a covenant or vow. Number one, marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman. Malachi 2 said, she is your companion, your wife, by covenant. Marriage isn't a contract between a man and a woman that can be torn up. Marriage is entered by way of a covenant or vow. Vows and covenants cannot be broken. To break them is to incur trouble, and you will see that in a minute. Marriage, number two, is a covenant before community. In Deuteronomy it says, if a man says, I married this woman, but when I approached her, I did not find proof of her virginity, then the girl's father and mother shall bring proof that she was a virgin to the town elders at the gate, society. This was a legal issue. In fact, it was documented. Marriage is not a private matter. It is a public matter. Not only is it not just a little promise between a man and a woman, it is also, but a covenant with real vows. It is also a covenant that is public. And the reason is because it affects society almost more than anything else, for the good or for the bad. 
Marriage is not a private matter, it is a public matter. And when a previous prime minister in our country said, the state has no business in the bedrooms of the nation, he was wrong. He was dead wrong. We saw earlier how marriage and sexuality affect society. It was in the best interest of children and the future of the country for the state to protect the institution of marriage. That is the job of the government because it affects society. Number three, marriage is a covenant witnessed and overseen by God. Malachi 2.14 says, the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. The Lord was what? What's the word? Witness, very good answer. He's, he was witness, and God takes this very seriously. Faith, faithfulness to one's spouse is inextricably, inextricably linked to spiritual well-being. Verse 13 indicates that God no longer regarded their offering with favor. Look what it says. The second thing you do, and God's listing the problems he's got with them in Malachi, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because you, he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he do that? Why doesn't he answer? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. You don't mess with God about this matter. God decided he was going to seal and protect the marriage with a covenant that he would back up with action against the offending party. 1 Peter 3, 7 says, and we see this concept, somebody says, well, that's just Old Testament. No, wait a minute, hang on. New Testament, too. 1 Peter 3, 7, likewise, husbands, live with your wives, in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as to the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So why is God so resolute and unbending about this? Two reasons, and then we're done. Number one, the covenant protects others from great harm. All sin is sin, but not all sin is equal. That's why, for example, God had different penalties for murder and for theft, though both were sin. And as we already saw, it is devastating for children not to be raised by both biological parents when it is possible and negatively impacts the remainder of their lives in every way. And the social cost to society is incalculable. God wants to place a check in place to prevent us from doing something that will harm others that we will regret now and always. And number two, the covenant holds the marriage together until the glue of mature love cements in the relationship. Have you ever seen vice grips? Anybody know what a vice grip is? Yes. Uh, I had one once. And uh, you can take two pieces of wood and you, and you put glue in, and while it's setting, like if, if, if you, you take a vice grip and you, and you 
and you clamp it together. Or maybe it's called a vice clamp. Is that better? Oh, just a wood clamp. I'm learning. I do this all the time. <laughs> and once the glue has cemented, you can take the clamp off. That's what a covenant backed by action from God who is a witness to marriage is for. You go in with romantic love. That's what so, uh, uh, sociologists tell us. You go in with romantic law, love. It lasts for between three and five years. Just the automatic kind. You know, the flutter stuff. It just happens. You really had no control over. Now you make a covenant. And mature love starts to grow in the relationship. And finally, you don't even need the covenant anymore. It's set. And they're glued together. And you'll never take them apart. Amen? But we'll talk about that more next week. Studies reveal that two-thirds of unhappy marriages will become happy within five years if people stay married and do not divorce. Two-thirds! Our society is telling us, just get divorced. You're unhappy, get out of there. If you stay by covenant within five years, you're going to have a marriage without regrets. Five years! That's all it takes. Otherwise, you're going to be a miserable so-and-so running around. It's true. Amen. Marriage certificate is not just another piece of paper. Next week, we'll open up the great mystery of marriage, which Paul talks, spoke about in Ephesians 5, 31 to 33. Remember, he says that, uh, and, uh, and, and they'll be made one, you know, the... The husband is supposed to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall be one. And he said, this is a great mystery. We're going to talk about that great mystery next week. This week, I was uh, meditating in my devotions, and I got to 1 Corinthians 8, 6. As I was reading through, and I, I read one verse, and that was, I was done. Because I, I couldn't get away from a phrase that was in there. And it said this, for whom we exist. Oh, that captured my attention. I just got up and began to pace early in the morning. I was praying and I said, God, I exist for you. That's my meaning and purpose in life. That's it, right there. For his glory, I exist for you. So whatever you want, I exist. And all day long, I, as I was working, I would stop and Sometimes I would just stop and I would say, I exist for you. I just want you to know, I exist for you. I exist for your glory, for your praise. It's not about me. It's not about myself. It's all about you. You made me. That's meaning and purpose in life. Amen. He made us, after all. <laughs> Can't he make us for himself? I'm not depressed by what's all happening around us in culture at all. Oh, I think about it every day. And I work as I listen to the Holy Spirit and he speaks to me. I work accordingly to fulfill what he wants me to do because I exist for him. <laughs> and 
all my fulfillment comes out of that meaning and purpose in life. I exist for him. And as I do what he wants me to do, it's tremendous joy. It doesn't really matter in that sense what's all transpiring here. I'm not living for here. In many ways, I left here a long time ago. The world is spinning out of control. And what it does is it just simply reveals to us and to the world that they can't actually do it without them. The more the world spins out of control, the more convinced I am that there is a God. <laughs> and the more I long for heaven. That's part of the reason God allows bad things to happen around us. Do you find that as the world gets darker, there's a new longing in your heart for him and a new longing in your heart for heaven? That's how I find it. It creates a longing. We were singing. I couldn't believe it. We were sitting there. We hadn't sung the song forever. Soon and very soon, the king is coming. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. The world looks like it's out of control, but God's not. Amen. And we exist for him. And he has a place for us as God's people to be salt and light in the dark world and to save those who will look at the evidence. Is that true? And so one of the key things that reflects God, the Trinitarian God, is a biblical marriage. Church, don't ever let go of that. Young people, don't ever let go of it. Don't ever compromise that. You're not living for today. You're living for tomorrow, and tomorrow's coming soon. Very soon. Maybe, you're, maybe you came here this morning and your life is spinning out of control. That's evidence that you can't do it on your own either. God's allowing it in your life to demonstrate something to you that you can't do it on your own. You were never intended to do it on your own. You need Jesus. <laughs> you need a relationship with him. And you can have that. Now, so I'm going to invite everybody to bow your heads with me and we're going to pray. If you're here this morning, your life is out of control and you've been resisting God, know this, the fact that it's spinning out of control is a gift from him to signal to you that you better look for some help and that it's outside of yourself. You won't be able to do it. Only he can change your life. You need him. Follow me in this prayer together, church. Dear God, thank you for bringing me here today. I recognize today that following the world's plans 
just spins everything out of control. How desperately I need God. How desperately I need you in my life. I ask you to forgive me for my rebellion. For trying to do it on my own. Forgive me of my sins. Right now I receive Jesus as my Savior. And as my Lord, you be in charge. And I'll follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, then you just became a Christian. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.